The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Monday night edition of the Dunkdown Basketball Podcast. Fun one coming up today. Dylan Murphy is back. We're hoping to have him on regularly to talk about what his observations are as he's watching a ton of games. If you don't know Dylan, he is the author of the Basketball Dictionary series. He's writing a little bit for The Athletic as well. Wrote a nice piece about Toronto's offense, which we'll talk about. And of course, a former assistant for the Fort Wayne Mad Ants and former D-League scout for the Atlanta Hawks. How are you doing, man? Doing well. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. So the big topic, of course, in the league is Boston having now won, I think, 15 straight games. And one of the reasons why I felt like they really weren't going to be as good as people thought this year was that they struggled defensively in the playoffs at times they weren't that good and then they lost Jay Crowder who we thought was a pretty good player they lost Avery Bradley as well and they're going to be Kyrie Irving not a great defensive player they're going to be relying on rookies or second year guys Jason Tatum Jalen Brown didn't think necessarily that those guys could be that good of course they now have the number one defense in the league by a mile so how are they doing it you know I don't think there's been a massive structural change to what they're doing in fact just you know watching some film of last year compared to this year I mean tactically it's really the same thing they you know middle ball screens they their bigs are in a drop and they go over and under depending on personnel the side they're icing everything sending it down to the corners um you know a lot of people point to their switching more this year but if you really look at it you know one of the common things across the NBA that teams do is they switch like size and this year they have a lot more like size guys uh, yeah. on the perimeter playing in the rotation so it's not that they're asking their guys to switch more it's just they have more like size players so it's easier to just switch quickly across one through four so you're seeing that really a lot more um and then you know when you have a lot of length which you know they really do this year you know all those gaps that they had last year just become a little tighter you know and so you know the passing lanes get a little smaller and then you know these incremental changes add up over time so yeah so i i think part of it too we talked about this statistically that they've had some pretty good luck in terms of three pointers oh this is what i wanted to ask you like they've struggled really badly the last couple of years on the defensive glass and this year they're one of the best in the league on the defensive glass Al Horford got a lot of crap uh, he's been playing mostly at center this season you know they have Baines who's a good rebounder but he doesn't play that much so how have they been able to clean up so much on the defensive glass compared to past years I mean again I would just you know ascribe it to the length I mean when you when you win the length battle positionally uh you know you're gonna get an advantage on the glass so you know teams are downsizing more and more across the league and, and generally Jalen Brown is more athletic than his guy guy 
like Jason Tatum tends to be longer than the guy he's guarding. And so, you know, you just go on down the line and they just got more athletic people. And then the other thing also is when you're forcing more missed shots, at least in my experience, teams tend to get a little deflated with their energy. And so they're not attacking the offensive glass as much, but then, which then in turn allows you to clean up the defensive glass better. And so I think it's sort of cyclical in that way. Um, but, you know, I mean, sometimes also it can just be your team tries harder on the glass and it makes a big difference. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but if you, if I had to point to one thing, I would just say, you know, winning the length battle positionally. Well, and another part of it too, I think is if you're giving up harder shots, you know, outside shots in general, more mid-rangers, if you're not allowing as much penetration, those shots are harder to offensive rebound. We know that missed layups are much easier to offensive rebound generally because you've already forced help. You've gotten the big out of position, you know, guys aren't in rebounding position. And so if they can get to the rim, then you've got a great chance at a putback if you're shooting a contested mid-ranger against a static defense and you have you're not in rotation you know i think the additional switching with the, their like size as you said helps that as well if you're keeping the ball in front of you then when a shot goes up everyone is still matched up on their man much easier to get a rebound yeah you know one thing i love about you know brad stevens defense and a lot of coaches across the league do this too but you know there is sort of a tendency now for players to just switch because it's the easy thing to do you know let's say there's a yeah. stagger on the weak side or whatever and um you know the guy at the top of the stagger just switches with the guy at the bottom because well why should i run that extra 10 feet but if you if you really watch boston's defense they don't switch unless they have to you know they're really not just switching because they can they're switching because well you know a guy got hit hard by a screen so and, and i think also part of the problem with switching is even though it seems easy one of the things it does it sort of it only puts out the first fire and it's not really looking in the long term of what you're creating on that possession you know when you switch what you're doing is you're giving an opportunity for the other team to really break down your defense you know the whole point of a pick and roll coverage or you know trapping the box sinking filling and just not switching uh, against drives or pick and roll or whatever it is is you're allowing your defense to bend and not break whereas when you switch you're trying to just say okay we're going to cut this off completely but when you create those mismatches now it allows complete triple penetration potentially or complete post-up mismatch that causes a double and now your defense is broken down totally so that's why I really don't personally believe in switching unless you have to because I think it just allows for gaps that can really be exploited now you know there is the counter argument of course that you see a lot of guys who really struggle to take advantage of switches and I'm not talking about the guys who aren't talented enough I'm talking about you know the really good players who settle for bad shots against switches and I think that there's a legitimate counter argument you know it's funny actually i say that all the time too like against switches you'll see guys like and Kyrie has been doing better with this but he took one i forget which game it was it wasn't the it was oh i think it was the brooklyn game actually he got a switch and then took like you know a really tough fadeaway going to his right behind the three-point line on a step back and my thought always was like hey you know what like if you're that good if you just got a switch like you're too good to take that bad of a shot right like that's you know even if you can make that if you're that talented you know DeMar DeRozan kind of needs to take shots like that right like he's not gonna blow by guys and get open but like for Kyrie you know you should be able to beat your guy more so that you're more open th- than that so there, I, I agree with you there are guys with the tendency who just kind of you know like all right you know I'll take the, the easy one here I know I can make this shot but it's still not a great look in the grand scheme of things yeah and I think the 
the issue is that when a guard sees a switch on a big and he's got the ball on the perimeter, he's thinking, okay, I have to score here. I've got the mismatch. I have to score. But yeah, what yeah. You, what, what your real advantage is is when you've got a slow-footed player on you is that you can penetrate, right? And when a, regu- yeah. when a guard is just in a regular situation and he drives and kicks, what does he do? He's drawing help and he's kicking. Well, when you drive against a big, yeah, maybe you're not able to score because he's got greater length, but I guarantee you the defense is going to help because they see a, a perceived mismatch, so they're going to yeah, sink they're- freaked out right and so that that's a really that's a thing that i don't see a lot is when you see a guy switched onto a guard that's a big the guard just drives to score and takes a bad shot but that's where the real advantage is it's either you drive kick or you hit the other mismatch and you get a a good post-up advantage which is where i think you know the post is gonna sort of come back to life the next couple years i mean you're seeing really the best players learning to post because they get switches on smaller guys so you know guys that can post up i think that's where the the switch mismatch is going to be taken advantage of in the next couple years well and the other thing i like too is when on a switch like don't okay now we're gonna throw it to the guy 20 feet from the basket and he's gonna back in and now you can bring someone over to the strong side and kind of take that away at the video style whereas all right now you've got the small guy in you how about you just duck into the lane and either force help from the backside in a lob situation or you know even if you can't get the the ball to that guy now you can drive to the basket because there's really no help you got this little guy under the basket He's trying to front, so he's not in help position. And now you can blow by that big like you were talking about. Yeah, exactly. You know, And I think another thing here to, to point out is that going back to our sort of Boston discussion, that you when when you're switching more, your lineup tends to be smaller, and I would say as a general rule. But then that means they're going to switch against you also. So it's creating this lack of mismatches everywhere. So it's sort of neutralizing that capability of, you know, posting the smaller guy or driving by the big. You know, I mean, I mean, if you really think about it across the league, I mean, how many true fives are there right now? now that just have no chance against a guard in a mismatch i mean not that many really slow-footed fives that play a lot of minutes I mean, you think about the the fives that are able to command 30 to 40 minutes a game they're pretty athletic the andre drummonds the deandre yeah. jordans granted you know they can't stay in front of those guys forever but it's really not that big of a mismatch well yeah and especially if you're talking about you know you take your average starting point guard like a jeff teague or even like an eric Bledsoe type of guy all right you know if it's steph if it's james harden if it's the kind of guy who can take i mean because i think what really messes with those bigs is when they got to get out at the three-point line and not only at the three-point line but like you know heels on the three-point line then it changes the angle so much i mean even for me playing pickup like if you're playing in a game with the nba three-point line and if you're just a listener if you ever try that trying to defend all the way out there the angles are so much different because they have so much room behind you you can't like sink back and cut off the angle the way you can if you're closer so it's uh i agree with you though there are not that many times when it's a pure mismatch and especially you know if you're late in the clock as well you've got that as an ally um but getting back to what you were saying initially and i love these these tangents we go on obviously but yeah i think the low resistance switches around the league is something danny complains about that all the time when we're doing the twitter nba show and i think like for example houston any screen involving james harden they're just going to switch even if there's just like barely any contact made and i think what i like about how golden state and boston do it is like all right you know we're going to wait until you actually are going to make contact on this screen before we're going to switch we need before we really need to switch and that also helps you avoid miscommunications when guys are trying to slip the screen and go back door without actually setting it 
Yeah, I totally agree. And I think the other thing about Golden State is, again, like Boston, people don't, uh, people sort of misconstrue their, their defense. It's not that they just say switch everything. It's again, they're, they're constantly like slides, like size all over the floor. You know, when you got Draymond at the five, I mean, the reason why they can switch one through five effectively or two through five, really, uh, discounting Curry yeah. is that, you know, everybody is effectively the same size and, and Clay Thompson can guard a post player relatively well. So it's yeah. not that they're just but saying very oh, underrated part of Thompson's game. Totally. Yeah. And yeah, but it's not that they're just saying, oh, we're switching because, you know, it's easier. They're saying, well, we're switching because we're like size. And I think that's a, a big thing here that, you know, most teams adhere to. And it's not just like, oh, we're going to switch one through five. You know, the only time when I was coaching, we would s- switch one through five is anytime there were six seconds or less on the shot clock, the whole bench would yell out red, red, red. A, to alert on offense, the, the ball handler that um, there were only six seconds left. So he had to go make a play. Didn't mean shoot the ball, but just go make a play. And then on defense, yeah. conversely it meant we were switching one through five under six seconds because as you alluded to earlier there's not enough time on the shot clock to really take advantage of that and so you can just have your big crowd the space of the ball handler uh and not let them back up and then build speed because there's just not enough time left yeah all right we're gonna have much more with dylan he he mentioned the term trap the box i'm gonna ask him uh, what that means and then we also uh want to talk about jalen brown and, and jason tatum on boston his impression of those guys we're going to talk about how to guard joel Embiid uh more on Toronto's offense as well which he wrote about and and some more of course on his coaching experience and we'll do that right after this word from movement watches all of the misery of holiday shopping can disappear with the press of a button with movement watches myself my family my mom has gotten them for my cousins her nieces We've all given these as gifts and really had some extremely happy recipients. If you've already gotten yourself a watch, you know how awesome they are. And you can finish your holiday shopping and get a movement watch for someone on your list. One thing I think the best advertisement for them is if you just go to that movement, mvmt.com slash cap space URL and check out their selection. I really like their 40 series. They've sold over 1 million watches in 160 countries. Also a great way to support the pod if you're an international listener. I know some of our sponsors are not available overseas from the u.s so once again mvmt.com slash cap space easy to remember that url because we talk about cap space all the time in the program that'll get you 15 percent off today mvmt.com slash cap space join the movement okay so periodically I, I love that you talk to our audience in a way that you know that you and i would have a conversation that and you know sometimes i don't even know what you're talking about but <laughs> but you know so I, I encourage you to keep doing that talk the way you would talk and when times come up where you know you use some terminology that the listeners may not be familiar with i'll just stop you and we can talk about it so you mentioned the idea of trapping the box as a help defense concept i know you wrote about that uh for your basketball dictionary but can you explain for the listeners like what that idea is yeah so you know the the real foundation of defense is isolation defense you know everyone talks about picking pick and roll defense dropping icing hard show all this stuff you know more commonly discussed but really isolation defense is where it all starts because if you can't guard the man in front of you then there's no point in setting a ball screen in the first place so uh, what teams in the NBA tend to do is they they all operate on a no middle concept so even if you give up penetration the idea is that you're giving it up uh, towards the sideline and not towards the middle um, and so what this does is imagine there's a guy on the right slot and he drives right so he's coming in towards the right side of the yeah. basket and the defender is uh, on and, and the, the slot by the way that's basically if you draw the lane line and just continue it up to the three-point line that's where we're talking about there right and actually this is why i did the dictionary because it's kind of hard to talk about some terms without defining other terms and so you yeah you kind of build we got a lot of time we got a lot of time (laughs) 
Uh, <laughs> anyway, so the drive is coming off the right slot towards the right side of the rim. Um, and in a typical spread offense, you'll have uh, a player on the right slot, the left slot, the right corner, the left corner. And then whichever side the ball is on, um, the big, if he's not setting a ball screen, is in one of the dunker spots, which is basically just like the little area outside the lane um, against the baseline. You'll often see that's where the bigs hang out. The idea is they're avoiding offensive three seconds while also giving a little dump off pass to drivers. So um, guy drives off the right slot. And the big who is guarding the player in the opposite dunker, it's his job to come over from the weak side and greet the ball handler at where the the boxes or the block, really above it. But the term is trap the box. So the guy drives and then he comes over and greets him there. So you have an essential double team right there on the ball. And so that's where the help defense comes. So you hear a lot of people say, oh, this guy's good at help defense. This guy's, well, what they're really, you know, sort of intuitively referencing is the ability to trap the box. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean it's a shot blocker. Because if you're in a spread offense, let's say, or really spread where you have five out and there's no guy in the dunker spot, then it's the guy in the opposite corner who's coming all the way over and trapping the box. So that could be a wing, a point guard, it could be anybody. So everybody really has to know how to do that. And then from there, uh, the other thing I mentioned, sinking and filling, basically the the next guy over on the weak side drops down into the knees of the uh, offensive player sitting in the dunker spot. So he's helping the helper. So that's the help the helper. And then the guy from the strong side elbow sinks into the or really fills excuse me fills into the lane and he's watching cutters and kickouts so he's the first man to jump out on a kickout to uh, to guard a three-point shooter so it's all sort of this movement in tandem to help Um, but the idea is you know you no middle trap the box sink and fill and then x out is the final one where you sort of crisscross your matchups on the perimeter to get back to shooters yeah and that the the x out is an interesting concept because you mentioned the the guy coming down into the lane to to watch for cutters and so the idea is then that he if the ball goes to the weak side even if it goes to the corner where the the sink and fill guy was initially guarding that guy it's still his job to sprint out to the corner it, it just yeah, whichever so- pass goes to the weak side you're you're sprinting out there and then the sink and fill guy would get back out to the wing if the ball goes to the corner yeah so actually there's one sink guy and one fill guy so the sink guy is the one right. that's hit, hitting the big's knees um, because obviously he's usually smaller so you want to drive right. into his lower body so he can't rise up you know and maybe get an offensive rebound or get a dump off pass or a lob whatever it is um um, and so that guy is guarding the weak side corner. Now, if he's able to sink onto the big in the opposite dunker spot and then get back out to the weak side corner, then everybody normally returns to their matchups. But what right. o- often happens is when that guy sinks, he gets caught up, bodies get tangled. It's really hard for him to release from that contact. And so he can't get out to that shooter. So the fill guy then sprints out to the opposite corner or whoever the fifth guy is. Depend. It really just depends on the arrangement. But basically, the next closest guy will sort of move in a diagonal fashion towards that corner and then the sink guy will make an x across that guy's path to the weak side wing and so that's that's your x out and then you know that sort of situation can happen you know all over the floor it can happen in pick and roll it can be an x out from slot to slot but you'll often see recovery that way as just okay whoever's closest go and then we're all going to rotate in behind to to fill the gaps yeah, and that's where you'll see a lot of miscommunication too, where you'll see Completely. the same same two guys running towards the, towards one guy, or then like one guy will peel off eventually. And so the, the teams that really have that drilled, that know each other, that can say, okay, you know, this guy he, he's stuck, he's really engaged with the big, I better go help him in the corner. You know, the, the teams that kind of have that intuitive understanding and the experience seem to do better. And just you know, you can look really bad if you don't communicate that, because then you just have two guys running to one shooter, and then they just throw it to the other guy, and he's wide open for days. Yep. Um, 
So let's get back to Boston here. What do you think Jalen Braun can be as an offensive player? I mean, this year, is, his usage is up a little bit. He's shooting 40% from three, but obviously, you know, that's just a, a month's worth of shooting. So we don't want to get too hung up on that aspect. But do you see him as a guy who could become, you know, a solid foundational offensive player, first or second type of option? Or do you see him more as a guy who's just, you know, could be effective attacking closeouts, maybe mismatches, but, you know, you're not putting the ball in his, his hands specifically? Yeah, you know, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to say. Uh, a lot of times, guys who don't have those certain skills, it takes them time to develop, you know, in terms of the ball handling and, and all that. And right now, I mean, what I see is more, you know, sort of an Otto Porter offensive contribution, as you said, yeah. which is becoming an elite three-point shooter, uh, spot-up guy, you know, being able to attack closeout, multiple dribbles, make a play, uh, that kind of thing. But, you know, obviously Jalen Brown athletically is, is really superior to most guys, so that gives him a big advantage as a driver, um, then also as a, an ability to pass the ball because when you can drive leave your feet and see the whole defense or see over the whole defense excuse me then you know it really becomes a lot easier to make plays but you know right ha- right now the big thing for me is that just the ball handling he's really not not there yet and I think you know that takes time with a lot of guys just learning to dribble the ball I mean it's you really don't see a lot of guys over six five that can handle the ball really well and so that's not a knock yeah. on him per se but it's just that without that capability it, it becomes very hard to be uh, uh, an elite go to score unless you have a post game which is I think where Jalen Brown you see sort of him gravitate towards that you know one of the things just taking notes on his game you know before we did this podcast um, you know one of the first things I noticed is that he loves to post smaller guys and you know the ability to do that as we were talking about the switching is a huge huge advantage for an NBA team now you can take advantage of a mismatch and um, you know he, he is not that skillful in the post per se he's not gonna you know back you down hit you with you know a couple shakes and an up and under and a step through and you know a hook shot or whatever he just sort of backs down jumps over and finishes and you know he doesn't have that great touch right now um you know one of the things i, I sort of when i was taking notes i treated it like almost like a scouting report like what i would say to, sure. guard, to guard him and you know one of the first things that occurred to me is you know with these types of players you always have to tell your bigs ver- two-hand vertical contest no swatting at the ball because you're not yeah. you're really not going to be able to block Jalen brown's shot frequently and what's going to happen is he's going to leave his feet hang in the air and you're going to swat and you're probably just going to foul him um and because he doesn't have great touch you just you have to force him to make baskets in the restricted area without dunking it right and so let him hit your yeah. body he, he'll miss a lot of over. easy layups yeah he'll miss it, a lot of easy layups you know i will so surprise i will disagree with you that they're easy i think which is like the most what a lot of people don't realize is that when you get hit in the air it really really takes you off balance it can be very difficult to finish i mean anyone who's played basketball knows when you're moving at a high rate of speed and someone just gives you a little nudge it can really throw you off balance I mean, you don't have that lateral yeah. that lateral balance it's just it can be really difficult to finish and some guys like Steph Curry you can shove him off to the side and he can still finish because they have elite touch so either Brown's going to have to get you know stronger in that area which obviously he will as he gets older or he'll have to you know improve his skill which again he's very young so he will so I think all that projects to him you know having a really dominant post game uh, hopefully one day and I think that's where he can really have a big advantage is sort of playing the the 3-4 for that for Boston. 
You know, it's interesting. Most people agree with you uh, on Brown's handle. I think I agree with you in the sense that I think it's not reliable in that, you know, he'll lose the ball a reasonable amount of times. He'll, you know, he could be prone to turning it over. But I also think he has a lot more creativity with his handle than, as you said, yeah, there aren't that many guys, you know, over 6'4", 6'5", really, who, who are like that. I think he actually has some pretty good creativity and he'll try some moves that, you know, if he could just tighten it up a little bit, and especially like in transition too, you know, you'll see this a lot uh and in summer league in particular there was a game where he basically scored like 20 points in transition um so i think and having watched him at the lower levels too i think he's he'll try a lot of things and he has like some nice in and outs and he can go behind the back and cross over it's just you know he'll lose the ball more often than he should on those moves but i think he actually has more potential in that area than many give him credit for i think there's a a distinction at least in my mind between um are you a ball hand to score or are you a ball handler to show and what I mean by that is there's some players who will dance with the ball in the perimeter but when it comes time to penetrate it's hesitation crossover go straight line and I think that's the category Jalen Brown falls into where when it you know you put down your chips it's I'm using my speed I'm using my strength I'm using my athleticism to get to the rim and there's some guys who when they drive they can make that second move at a high rate of speed going downhill obviously a Kyrie is and Steph Curry are great examples and the most extreme examples of that where their ability to dribble at high speed allows them to change direction with the ball whereas a Jalen Brown I feel like once he decides he's now okay I'm going downhill it's he's going in the line that he's going and sometimes you know you'll see him spin back to his right hand because he doesn't love going left I mean move he loves is you know jab uh jab right go left and then he'll get cut off and he'll spin back to his right but that spin back like you alluded to is not totally under control and that leads to a charges b offensive fouls with his arms swinging out and see just miss shots because he's off balance and so to me that's sort of the distinction I draw whereas what is his ball handling doing for him right now and I don't think it's at a high enough level where he is making multiple moves with the ball in his hands yeah no I I think that's a that's a reasonable distinction and it, for me i think it's even in transition where i uh, i'll see i think he's he at least like doesn't dribble defensively in transition like that's a, a phrase that i'll use where it's like all right if if you're a guy who's six five or over and that is what so impresses me about ben simmons to it at his size to where okay you know you can bring the ball up like plenty of people can just you know bring the ball up but now if there's a little guard around are you going to kind of you know retreat towards the sideline and pick up your dribble and look for someone else to pass to or just like you know lose your aggressive or you're gonna say no i can actually beat this guy like uh, you know yeah please go for this deal on me because i'm gonna just blow by you you know like that's if you have that level of confidence in your handle and he's not there yet uh you know ben simmons i think definitely is it's it's so ridiculous that because he's like a legit 610 if you see him in person um but that i think is is an important distinction when we're talking about some of these grab and go guys absolutely and one of the things i really like about jalen brown is the fact that he is unafraid to make plays even though yes sometimes he's out of control sometimes you know he misses shots close to the rim because he's not on on balance you know he'll turn it over a little bit too much but I think it I'd ra- much rather have his style of where you're doing too much and I have to rein you in versus yeah. you're doing too little and I'm trying to draw it out of you right because as the skill level gets higher and the strength gets higher a lot of those mistakes get ironed out and then as the IQ goes up you start to understand when to be aggressive and when not to but when you're initially not aggressive I think it's a lot harder to draw that out of a player and I think it's a lot of it's just a mindset and how you play the game and i think it can be pretty instructive in terms of the type of player that a guy has the potential to be 
All right, so I knew this was going to happen. We were going to get it into the weeds, but that's all right. We got uh, uh, the whole rest of the season to, to get to some of these. But one of the things that uh, I wanted you to do that I thought it would be an interesting segment for us to try is pretend basically, you know, I, I was a, a big man in, in a former life, at least, you know, that, uh, when I played, you know, at, at like rec level in high school and stuff. But pretend that I'm the guy who's going to be guarding Joel Embiid tonight, right? So what? give me like the scouting report on him. What are we trying to take away? Like, how are we going to defend him you know what should be my focus if i'm going to guard him you know from sort of like you know 90 seconds two minutes or so like what what are the main things that you're trying to take away if you're going to guard him yeah so you know an important thing generally when you're giving scouting reports scouting reports to players i found is you know they're either done one of two ways you can do video and a written scout that you give to all your guys or just video um you know really depends on the coach what he prefers but if i'm giving a written scout to a guy i'm being very clear on what a guy does even if it's already very obvious like let's say a jj reddick i'll say like oh three point shooter oh yeah everybody knows that but i'm still gonna stick it on there and underline it and just drive it home from the beginning so the first thing i'm gonna say about joel Embiid is gonna be can hit pick and pop threes that's the that's the first thing gonna be on the top of my scouting report why because everyone knows he's skilled and he can go on the block and all that but you know the thing that can frustrate coaches is when you don't believe a guy can do something until he does it to you two or three times and then it's like oh okay well you know you want to drive that home point home from the beginning so i'm going to say to you okay he can hit pick and pop threes and then what else i'm writing there is we're going to stunt to a touch which means when we let's say we ice a a ball screen on the side or you know we're dropping and going over in a ball screen in the middle and he pick and pops our big is staying with the ball our guard is fighting to get back to the ball so the guy who is going to stunt at joel Embiid and help basically leave his guy and go to joel Embiid for just a second he's not going to go to five feet away from him he's going to stunt to a touch so he's going to go and touch his body get all the way that close so when the the ball handler looks to throw it back to him on a pick and pop he sees a body right there so we're going to stop the pick and pop three that way um the other things i have on here so good athlete unafraid of contact muscle finisher with very good touch prefers to put it on the ground with left on face up or from the perimeter watch jab right and go left Uh, and then how to guard uh defense i'm coming after him on the first dribble um so with a double team when he's in the post because he's turnover prone with his head down he tends to just kind of drop his head the second he puts that first dribble down so that's one to come with a, yeah. a dig to a double so the guy who makes the entry pass uh if his man doesn't cut through i'm gonna have him sort of jump back and forth at Embiid, and then once he puts his head down and, and puts that first dribble down then he's gonna go and close on him in a double team and if the guy cuts through then he's um the sorry the post enter cuts through the guy who's guarding him is gonna sit on the weak side and again come from the baseline side uh on that first dribble to surprise him with the double team um and then the other thing i'd say is yeah. you know when you're guarding him one-on-one play a step off bait him into a mid-range jumper right he really enjoys his mid-range jumper and it's a, a big thing with a lot of bigs is they like to prove they can shoot the ball and i think he has a little bit of that in him so play a step off bait him into that mid-range and uh battle hard for post position um because he really doesn't like to fight for post position so you can drive him out to 18 19 feet because he wants to face up so don't let him catch it at 10 11 right give him a little body a knee yeah. between the legs um i don't mean you know between the legs but like you put your leg between their legs and sort of so they're sitting yeah. on your thigh and that kind of knocks him out an extra two or three feet so those are the biggest things sure. i would say to say about uh Embiid. that's interesting actually because I, i've always felt that what he is and he's 
continuing to evolve too, right? Like if you watch that Lakers game, they tried to double team him and, and he ate that up pretty badly, right. you know, and that was a week after Golden State killed him by double teaming, you know, and obviously there's a big difference between Golden State's defense and the Lakers defense, but he he's continuing to evolve. I always felt, especially last year, that his mid-ranger is so good and that uh, he really likes to, tr- when he turns and faces and tries to drive off a turn and face, that he's really not that effective. As you mentioned, he always likes to, to go left. So if you can kind of get him to go middle and then maybe bring a little help there, I always felt that was good. But like when he turns and faces, I felt like his dribble game is a little overrated. And I like, I think his mid-ranger is actually pretty good. Like if you back off on him, that like he'll just stick that and that that's, you know, like a 45, 50% shot for him, which, you know, is a pretty good efficiency in the half court. So I actually, I mean, I've, I'm not sure exactly what he's shooting for mid-range this year. And I would have to go look at the stats on like where he's been on post-ups, but just watching him, it looks like that is a very, very comfortable shot for him. And unlike a lot of players that it really goes in. So what I was, I mean, when we did the Twitter NBA show on him, I was actually complaining that the bigs like when he would turn and face like weren't eating up that space but you know maybe, maybe you see it a little bit differently with him because i would say hey i want him to put the ball on the floor because then you know he's a lot weaker with the dribble than he thinks he is and he likes to like go through all these moves and like proves how, how skilled he is whereas like the standstill jumper that he's just been working on for two years when he couldn't do anything other than shoot you know that i thought was one of his big strengths Here's what I'll say to that, which is even if he's making mid-range jump shots at a 50% rate, um, I at least you know my philosophy towards bigs in general um, posting up is we want to keep them as far away from the basket as possible. Yeah. Um, just because like, and when I say back off, you know, a step, I don't mean give him room to shoot. Yeah. I'm just saying like have yourself ready to protect against a face-up drive. Now, if he rises up to shoot, your hands still got to be right there, right? But we're not so close that we're trying to block his shot. Yeah. Um, and I think also when you when you get a guy to start shooting a lot of jumpers, it takes away his aggression in general. And I think just that aggression gets can get your team into foul trouble, yeah. right? It, it can get his confidence going when he gets a couple layups, you know. And if a guy's going to hit six or seven mid range jumpers on you, you know, I mean, ha- how many players in the league can really beat you by just knocking down mid range jumpers all game? Maybe Chris Paul, maybe Lamarcus Aldridge, right? But you know, and I, I'm just not ready to say that with him that we're just going to sell out on this one aspect of his game I'm, I'm still always in favor of generally letting not letting guys shoot but protect the rim protect the paint over uh you know overselling against jump shots and that even includes a three-point line yeah. in my opinion you know because i think when, when you oversell against prim- the perimeter in general it gives up penetration which then gives up better looks from the perimeter so yeah for me yeah yeah this is all this is all art versus science yeah for sure i, I mean and there's not many coaches play things differently and you start to see too i mean the, the complexity of nba defense right this, like there's this is actually something I, I wanted to bring up to, to you too we got asked about this on a mailbag last week of like you know every once in a while you see these tweets from like high school coaches of like oh man like you know i could watch a bunch of nba games and i don't see like any creative out of bounds plays that like i could use for my like high school i'm like well that's because like so much of it is personnel driven i mean you're you're something like this i mean we could you and i could spend a half hour just talking about how you want to guard joel and beat it in ISO and so like my philosophy is I completely agree with you after the guy has dribbled if he if you're gonna let him shoot without dribbling that's when guys I think can be really efficient so if you just make them take that initial dribble and then if they want to shoot off the dribble I I'm I'm much better about that like Carmelo is another one of these guys I feel like like if you let yourself get jabbed off by him and then just let him shoot that shot without dribbling like he's absolutely money on that shot if you can make him take a dribble and then pull up 
like I think his percentage goes down like a ton. I think to but I would say to that to make him take a dribble, you have to crowd his space yeah. a ton, which then which then opens up the dribble being north south. And I agree with you if you can make that dribble lateral, yeah. then you're getting a high percentage look for the defense. But the problem is when you crowd it, then you're allowing him to get to the rim. And the, the other thing also, which I think we haven't touched yeah. on, which I, I should have mentioned before, is you have to think about who you're going to be guarding, like who you're going to be putting right, on right, yeah. beat or whoever it is, right? And understanding the abilities of your own personnel is largely going to dictate how you are going to guard him because it's easy to say oh well crowd his space or oh back off but yeah. if i have a quicker well, player, well if i'm guarding him like, i can i can do everything if, if i'm guarding him i can i can <laughs> i can guard him however you want me to coach it's fine <laughs> right yeah you know like if i'm if i have brooke lopez on him for yeah. instance you know brooke is going to stand back a foot right you know and that's because he's going to get blown by if he gets closer but if i have you know i, I mean i can't think of like an athletic four or five right now off the top maybe like a deandre jordan yeah right then maybe i could be a little bit more aggressive because i know a he has a length and b he has the quickness to kind of try to take away both so i think that also plays a huge role in that and it's why you see from game to game so many big adjustments and uh, from team to team in terms of how they're guarding one player versus another and i think the other thing here is that like it's also very difficult from a coaching perspective to get your team to twist and turn from game plan to game plan from game to game it's really better I think Boston does this really well, which is they, you know, I, I wrote down like game plan discipline. They just like, they do what they do really well and they don't change what they do. Yeah, they make minor adjustments here and there, but they do what they do in pick and roll. They do what they do in ISO defense um, and they do that really well. And so if, what if, you know, you have a guy that does one thing really well in defense, you're going to make him do that every game. You're not going to switch it around. I remember there was one time we were playing, um, when I was coaching with the Mad Ants, we played the Rear Grand Valley Vipers or the Houston D-League team at the D-League showcase and it was my scout and uh, RGV is known for shooting a lot of threes like Houston is but they yeah. take that to a way farther level than uh, Houston does I mean I'm talking when Troy Daniels was in the D-League he was jacking 16, 17 threes a game average it was it was nuts so um, they, you know, for that game plan, we sort of changed things up and they had a, a pick and pop guy named Raphael Putney, who was a pretty good shooter. And so we had uh, Shane Whittington at the time, you know, really good guy, smart, high IQ player, uh, hard showing on pick and roll so he could get back on pick and pop. And we had our guys stay closer to shooters. And what ended up happening is Putney just went off. He kept getting to the rim because we had no help because everybody was staying near the three point line. And that went really counter to what our defensive principles were. And at halftime, we were getting killed, and we just went back to what we do. Yeah. And so, you know, from that, I realized, like, when you're trying to get away too much from what you teach normally and what you're good at normally, it can really sort of screw you up. Even if your game plan is sound, if you, if it's not built into your DNA, it can be really tough to, to alter that way. What, what was your – what's that conversation like when, as a coaching staff, you have to admit to the players, hey, you know, we came up with this plan. It's different from what we usually do. Like, we fucked up. This isn't working. You know, we're going to go back to, to something else. Is there – do you have to kind of acknowledge that sheepishly or do you just say it and, you know, you move on and everyone just handles their business? I mean, I think the bigger problem is when something's not working and you just don't change. Yeah. You know, I think the players recognize that, like, you're trying to – you know, they agree to it and they see it makes sense before the game. And then when it doesn't work and then you change, they're like, okay. You know, I mean, they weren't objecting either before the game. So it's like – it's that balance where you have to just – you make the change when the change is appropriate. And if the change is not appropriate, you don't make 
break it, but most guys are mature enough and recognize, okay, this isn't working, and they appreciate when you are able to swallow your own pride and say, okay, hey, this isn't working, we're gonna switch it up. Would you have when you get? Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I had nothing. I, I was finished. What were you asking? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> when you have you had times when you've you know come up with something as a staff, and then you know if you talk to like your team leader or, or your veterans or whatever, and they're like, hey, you know what, like I, this isn't really how I would do things. I don't think this is gonna work. Like, how do those conversations go? Are you, have you changed stuff up because they said stuff like that or, or is that something that doesn't happen as much maybe in the d-league as it might happen in the nba no it totally it totally happens in the d-league um you know one of the best times to sort of hash all that out is during shoot around yeah. you know most teams will do a pretty detailed prep on opponent plays for 20 minutes or so i mean it, dep- I mean, it depends well some teams do more some teams do less and depending on the sort of complexity of the playbook we were going against would sort of uh, determine how in depth we would get um you know in some plays like every team runs so we like wouldn't even need to go over them right per se depending but um yeah there'd be sometimes we'd walk out on the floor i'd you know i'd have the scout i'd have our second team line up in the offense our first team line up in the defense and you know sort of pass the ball around and walk through what we're doing and then a player might say hey like what do you think about doing this i think this might work better and then a couple guys agree with them and you know uh you just got to change right there if you know it's better for everyone to be on the same page uh than the right page you know one of my, one of my good friends from basketball jonah herskew he's an assistant video coordinator for the lakers he always used to say that to me better be on the same page than the right page um and so if all the guys feel one way it's you know it's really more important that everybody's guarding the same way and believes in guarding that way versus doing it another way and a couple guys disagree and they grumble and then they don't execute that defense as hard or you know with as much belief and then you get hurt right it's you know you'd rather have the second best defense working at 100 percent versus the best defense working at 60 percent. so that, yeah. that you really just have to be able to adapt like that all right we'll have and they're on the floor yeah. too so cool cool yeah uh so we'll have some more with dylan here but uh first this uh, from blue apron now that we're all settled into our new place we've really been enjoying blue apron Last week, my favorite were these pimento cheeseburgers. I didn't even really know that you could cook a good burger in a pan, but Blue Apron taught me how extremely well. We made it. Another little trick that I've gotten from them is just toasting buns in a pan with olive oil. It just crisps up so perfectly. Never knew that you could do that before I started with Blue Apron. And these burgers were some of the best I had. It really was a simple but really, really tasty meal with a topping that pimento cheese that you don't normally get. And that's really what Blue Apron is all about. You can learn new cooking techniques. You get all of these pre-portioned ingredients delivered right to your door. You can pick two, three, or four recipes a week based on what best fits your schedule. What we do actually is we, there's just two of us, but we order the four-person meal. We do it twice a week, and then we've got plenty of leftovers for later on as well. And right now, Blue Apron is treating Dunked On listeners to their first dinner, a $30 value, if you visit blueapron.com slash capspace. That slash capspace URL. Easy to remember because we talk about capspace all the time on the program. Check out this week's menu and get your $30 off with free shipping at blueapron.com slash capspace. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. All right, so we had a bunch of stuff we wanted to talk about here, but we're not going to have a chance to get to all of it today. Uh, but we've got you know another ten or fifteen minutes here. What do you most want to talk about of some of the things that that we had in mind here? Like, what's really been sticking out to you lately? 
Yeah, so just that article you had mentioned at the top uh, that I wrote for The Athletic Toronto about uh, the Raptors' sort of stylistic changes. Um, and I think, you know, it's easy to say that, oh, these, these teams that don't pass the ball should just start putting in a ball movement offense. Yeah, um, and, and, and by the way, some quick background on that. Danny and I talked about that on the 15 and 60 yesterday. Basically, last year they took pretty close to the top of the league in terms of mid-rangers and were pretty low in terms of percentage of shots from three and percentage of shots from the rim. And this year, that's flipped. They are top 10 in both three-point attempt rate and shots at the rim. And I think they are fifth from the bottom in mid-range attempts. So they have been doing things differently. Part of that is personnel. Uh, Part of that is the system that Dylan's going to talk about. Yeah, so you know, a lot of teams run now what's known as motion strong and or motion weak. Um, you know, everyone's stealing basically from the Spurs. Uh, you see the Hawks running it. You see the Jazz, Golden State. Um, it, really, every team runs a portion of it in some way, which is basically you start with the ball reversal. So you got the one brings it up on. the the slot uh, swings it to the top, the trail big, the four or the five, but you know typically the four just because you know he's usually a better ball handler, shooter, etc. Then he swings it across to the three. So you got this one to four to three reversal, and then the four and the one go set a stagger for the two in what's now the weak side corner, but what started out as the strong side corner. And so then from there, right now four players have touched the ball in about three seconds. And so the idea behind that, right, is I mean anyone who's ever played basketball knows when you touch the ball, you're more engaged on both. And so Toronto, um, you know, now this, this, the motion strong offense goes on a little longer and there are a bunch of other variations, but Toronto basically sticks with just one to four to three, double away, and then they just go right into a ball screen. Um, and in their stagger action, they the typically the guy in the corner curls instead of coming to the top. But I mean that's just a little variation they like. But basically the idea is the ball is getting through hands pretty quickly. It's touching a lot of guys, and it's just creating this idea of ball movement fast and quick decision making. And it can be hard when you have guys who are used to playing a certain way to get them to switch, especially when that way has been working. You know what do you what does Dwayne Casey say to Kyle Lowry and Demar Derozan at the beginning of the year? Hey, you know we've had a top six offense in each of the last three years but we're going to switch it all up you yeah. know it, that's a difficult conversation to have and i think you know yeah. when you well, look well, at working the, the, working is all relative right like i mean it's worked in the regular season and then every year in the right. playoffs they really have struggled i think also maybe too you know obviously i'm not in their locker room but the fact that both lowry and DeRozan have gotten contracts new contracts for that are pretty lucrative in the, the last two years you know maybe that makes it a little bit easier as well to say all right you know we've kind of got this equity built up we know what the what we can be but you know we need to find a way to get better and it's a risk but you know we have to try this yeah and, and you know i think another thing also another way that works um like you said when you have that equity built up it can be you know they're not lowry and DeRozan aren't really playing for their next contract right now yeah. they're just playing to win which makes it easier for them to, to sort of adapt uh to what coach casey wants but another way which that works which is really how you see these offenses develop more organically and last longer in my opinion which is when you have the guys who are doing the offense is when the team is bad right so whether it's you know Atlanta when Bud first took over or you know now in Brooklyn or you know Golden State when when Kerr took over where you're not I mean obviously Golden State wasn't bad but right you're not you don't have these stars that are unbendable where they've reached the point where they're sort of above the fold in terms of their ability and the offense revolves around them now Curry was obviously very good before yeah uh, Kerr got there yeah. and Thompson I, I think he's getting to where he was but he, he those guys are different kinds of 
personalities too. Yeah. Right. But but even so, they were still at a malleable point where like they could be taught new things and they could really sort of be willing to change more willing than maybe an older veteran guy who you know has been set in his ways and um, you know and so like so in Brooklyn for instance you know they if you really watch their offense the ball pings around all the time and it's really ball moving heavy and so when they start to get better players and when their own players start to develop they're going to be sort of built in intrinsically from the beginning this is how you play offense so as they grow into great players now you're going to have these ball moving offenses and you're going to have great players which is sort of the the best of both worlds and so you know in Toronto it's been impressive that they've been able to make that shift when you have two guys who are you know really into the heart of their careers having been doing it one way so and I know they've got the contract security and all of that and they just want to win but you know it's a lot easier to pay lip service to an idea than to actually do it and if you look at Lowry I mean he's really given up the ball early in possessions to run offense he's not just coming down for pick and roll um you know I don't have the numbers on this but just you know looking at it on the film he's really taking the pull-up threes he's taking are much better pull-up threes off pick and roll or off ISO or whatever and he's really not sort of hampering down the offense by just holding it and waiting yeah. for ball screens and and I think that's going to make a big difference for them in the long run yeah his usage actually has been down a little bit but you know the, they're continuing to play well offensively and they've got a lot of young talent on this team too which I, I think the way that they've been able to groom guys with picks in the late teens in the 20s through this run you know stands in contrast to a team like say the Clippers where you know they've kind of been Toronto and the Clippers have kind of been at similar levels these last few years in the east and west and the Clippers now really don't have any depth at all whereas Toronto even as Lowry is starting to age a little bit you know they're able to trade for Serge Ibaka with Terrence Ross and a first rounder and they could give up that first rounder because they had already some good young talent in the pipeline so that young talent I think can help you know I don't think it's going to win them a championship but it can at least help keep them afloat here in the east for these next couple of years yeah you know i mean this gives them their best shot i mean i think you know are they a championship contender i mean i think most people would say no but i mean if you're trying to maximize that roster and the ability to make it deep in the playoffs i mean they you know clearly what they've done hasn't worked so you know just the ball movement that they're getting and 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 i think another another point which i made in the article which i think is a huge um sort of uh, incentive of playing this way is when you have a ball movement style offense a built-in offense and your sets and and schemes and whatever um what what matters is not those plays but it's the mentality it creates for the non-organized plays for the transition for the half court sets that you know are transition that turn into half court it, it sure. builds this sort of mentality of ball movement that sort of seeps into the rest of your team and i think you're really starting to see that with toronto um and just how they play and you know will it be will it make the difference i don't know but i mean the east seems to be wide open right now so you know we'll see yeah and i think too like just the amount of time that they used to spend especially at the end of games especially in the playoffs with just there is a guy dribbling the ball at half court waiting for something to happen which usually would end up being someone lumbering up to set a ball screen with 12 on the shot clock you know and there's a point i can't remember where it was that this was made but basically the idea that getting into your offense early is just so important right i mean to to just make that first pass getting into doing something with you know 18 on the shot clock instead of 14 because once you get under eight seconds basically it's like iso or you know last ditch pick and roll time and so if you're starting with 12 seconds 14 seconds to really get into something it's like all right you just ran one action if that didn't work now it's it's iso time yeah, actually, I had a little uh, tweet storm about this the other day. That's right. That's where I saw um, it. I, I thought it was you, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, um, so when I was in the D-League, I tracked um, at what time in the shot clock our team got the ball over half court. Um, the, uh, the idea being like, okay, if we give ourselves more time in the shot clock, does it, give us, does it actually give us a better chance to score? Um, and I, you know, I did it in transition and the half court, but in half court, it really showed a huge difference. Basically, when we dropped under uh, 20 seconds on the shot clock when the ball crossed half court, our points per possession started to like drop like a meteor. It was just like... Like at 17, it was like 0.7 points per possession. And at 20, it was like 0.89 or something like that. So it was really was a huge difference. Um, You know, the difference between walking across or just getting across. Now, the idea really what you want is when does our offense initiate, not when does the ball cross half court. But I thought sort of went two things. One, when the ball crosses half court is a more stable thing to choose, right? Because when does our offense initiate? It's so subjective. Right, right. It kind of muddles the data. And two, when you're presenting this to players, right? You know, I wasn't really, I was a big, you know, stats guy, of course, when I was coaching and believe in analytics and all that. But when you're talking to players, you can't talk to them with an Excel spreadsheet, right? They just look at you like, what the hell are you talking about? Or who cares? So having simple, easy, presentable stats can make a big difference. And I thought like, you know, being able to say, hey, we lose 15 points every game by bringing the ball up slowly, right? That's way more impactful than saying, well, our points per possession on 18, it's like, what, you know, so having simple data and then be able to simplify that into a simple message made the biggest difference i thought in terms of making our pace go a little quicker all right we got time for one more topic here anything else you wanted to hit on um you know just just more on sort of this ball movement stuff you know because it really fascinates me that um teams you, you see such stylistic differences all across the league for how teams play and you know i always think about um you know like what you said earlier about uh you know you see like fourth quarter it's just like a DeRozan isolation or a loud Lowry pick and roll and how do you how do you do something different at the end of a game right you can say oh just run a play but let's say I, I draw up a play um, and the play is for Kyle Lowry and I'm saying oh the ball's going to get through hands there are going to be lots of options yada yada but what if the ball ends up in the wrong player's hands like what if I have you know CJ Miles out on the floor um, at an end of game situation and the ball ends up in his hands with four seconds and he's completely guarded right then we're not going to get a shot off but if I if I just give the ball to Kyle Lowry and I say okay at 10 seconds left on the shot clock just do your thing i know we're going to get a shot is it going to be a great shot no but we're going to get a a shot that's capable for us to win and so how do you you know what's the solution in the last two minutes besides iso and pick and roll and again remember you're trying to control the clock especially if you're winning um and it's impossible to control the clock when you run a play because what if a good shot presents itself with 15 seconds left on the shot clock are you just going to turn it down well if you turn it down then what was the point of running the play you might as well just held the ball and then run your iso or pick and roll so you know i thought a lot about this and and what the solution is and i don't know if you have an idea but i really don't you know it's really tough unless you're you know there's seven seconds left and you need a three you know what what is the solution i mean if you really look at the best ball movement offenses in the league even they iso and pick and roll at the end yeah you know so what what what's the answer there yeah i think it's when you because it's the timing argument is the most persuasive there if you're up if you're trying to run the time down you know and you're tied on the last possession or you know you're trying to get a two for one or, or whatever I mean, if you have those time constraints yeah i think you, you're there's a concern that you're not going to be able to control it that well uh, my favorite and again this is partially personal driven although you'll see them run it too 
at the end of a third quarter when they don't have all of their stars in there only have one of their stars like golden state this is just an example but i think you can come up with other ideas like this it runs an action that they call fist up which you probably have seen at the end of quarters i mean they run it probably you know at least 50 percent of the time at the end of quarters where you know with about probably seven seconds left they'll have one guy come up and set a pick and roll usually for staff and then simultaneous to that they will have uh a down screen set for a shooter going out to the corner in the direction that the pick and roll is going and then they'll have the weak side guy usually will lift up or they might even have like the guy who's about to set the pick and roll that he can slip that and go set a a wide pin down for the guy coming out of the corner usually you know if clay's in the game so it's it's a set that has a like basically three things that can all happen within you know a two or three second period and i think like that's really creative or you know there's another time too where uh they'll have i think tim duncan actually won a game like this for the spurs against the hawks a couple of years ago where they actually just set a pin down for tim duncan like a, a big popping out where you think all right you know he's being guarded by another big you got a pretty good chance here but part of it too is just you know there is this a little bit too much loss avoidance in that scenario right like you said hey let's uh you know at least we're going to get a shot we know we're going to get a shot whereas okay you know like you're going to look real bad if you don't get a shot right? like i understand that like there is a possibility you know cj miles will get it he's closed down now he's got to throw something up you know that kind of happened uh against uh in game one of the pacers Cavs series last year exactly that scenario that you're talking about but to say all right you know overall we can get a better shot if we do it this way if we run something just a little bit more normal just accept that okay sometimes we're not going to get a shot off and it's going to look incredibly ugly but that'll happen 10 percent of the time and then you know whatever that number is and then 90 percent of the time we can get something that looks a little bit better um as opposed to just being like all right you know we're gonna do the the safe thing that you know no one is ever gonna complain that we're not getting the ball you know that we got the ball in the hands of our best player and let him make a play that's like you know you're not gonna get fired for doing that but you're also you know overall it's not gonna work as well in the aggregate even if you would have some ugly results so you just have to be prepared that all right 10 percent of the time that might happen but the other 90 percent we're gonna have a higher points per possession yeah, you know, going back to that action you talked about from Golden State, there's a, a common action called dive, which you'll see like um, the ball handler will come down the court and then the four, instead of setting a ball screen, will just dive straight down the middle and come out to the opposite, to the weak side corner. And so that's that yeah. exact action you're talking about. A lot of teams just call it dive. Sometimes they'll throw a little pin down on that. Sometimes they won't. Um, and then the, the, the pin down you talk about, like let's say we'll just run a pin down for Tim Duncan. Um, but, you know, like you said, you know, what if he doesn't get the pin down or what if our ball handler just holds it and has to ISO you know I am curious what the numbers are on all that Um, you know and I know I know you can look you know the last 30 seconds what's the you know field goal percentage of teams or what's isolation you know scoring rate of various teams across the league in those situations but I think I mean this is going to sound you know maybe a little silly but I think like I think it makes a big difference when you give a guy time to think about what he wants to do on offense or at least Hmm. um, versus like let's say we run that pin down for Tim Duncan and now Tony Parker has the ball and there's six seconds left and he's like oh now I gotta go you know I think it's a lot a lot harder to score when you just have to react in that way and and, and like you said though the other thing I do think about also is what it, you know 
how like how am I how is my decision being affected by its perception right like how yeah is my decision making being affected by what other people are going to think of my decisions you know and you like to think it's no but how many people as coaches can honestly say that it's not right like how how do optics affect what teams are doing at the end of a game yeah like, you know Greg um, Greg Popovich and maybe Kerr are probably the only two or maybe Carlisle are, are maybe the only two you know Eric Spolstra maybe uh, yeah. you know could be in that as well but like yeah i mean there's there's a select group of coaches that feel like they both have that personality and have the job security to where they really can get past that kind of stuff yeah i mean we used to love when teams would run pick and roll end of quarters or isos because there's a there's a defense we used to call it our special defense so we just like you know yell out special 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 um, we're basically let's say okay you know how a guy just stands at the top everyone's spread uh you know the big stands at the dunker spot and waits and then at eight seconds typically it's about eight seconds they'll set set that run out to set that ball screen um, yeah so when that guy comes out what we would do was instead of having the big who was guarding him follow oh we'd yeah have the you guy pre-switch the corner, it right we'd have yeah. the guy exactly the guy from the corner run up so now a, a, a guard is guarding a big but when you set that ball screen it's just an easy guard guard switch and again like we talked about at the beginning since we're in a red defense you know switch one through five there's not enough time for them to take advantage of the mismatch now even though maybe our smallest guy has switched on to their five um, yeah. there's, you know there's four seconds left so they're just going to iso but now we have a better matchup so you know there that that's a common counter you'll see which is why you won't get a great shot in those situations because you're not getting a good switch but you know i mean these are these are all difficult questions to answer and i think like again it's hard to justify to yourself if you have a great player and you're taking the ball out of his hands at the end you know it's like you ask yourself well again it's easier to look yourself in the mirror and say well at least i gave it to lebron or at least i gave it to whoever you know and yeah it's it's tough well and i think too there's if you're just gonna have this guy pound the ball at the top of the key for the first 15 seconds of the possession and then you know all right you have him run up and do a pick and roll or an iso everyone on the defense knows what's coming like maybe at least you can do some dummy stuff and then bring the guy off a screen or a handoff or something like that where you know at least he can attack maybe with a live dribble or you know it's not like everyone can't just like load up with a foot in the paint for the guy or anything like that like so you at least you disguise it a little bit because you know you mentioned it's helpful for an offensive guy to know what he's going to do but I think it's even more helpful for the defense to really be like okay here's what's coming we all know what our assignments are hey I'm going to point at you okay make sure you're over there the coach yells at him all right make sure you got a foot in the paint you know like all, all that stuff like that makes it a lot easier but it, my last point going back to toronto is i'm much more forgiving of the stuff when it's like all right we have to run the time down in the last minute of the game or we're tied and we just you know we have to make sure the clock hits zero or the clock hits two so we can get a, an offensive rebound or and make sure that we don't we either go into overtime or we win the game one of the two right but what would kill me about toronto is the last five minutes of the game up or down it was hey we're not even like our first pass of the possession is with 12 on the shot clock and like they just they couldn't even like communicate to get into whatever like you know pretty boring play they're going to run early in the possession like at least just start earlier and then like see what happens uh, you know so that it was it was more a pervasive issue in the last five minutes of games not even where there wasn't necessarily like a particularly compelling reason to be running the clock down other than just like well it's the last few minutes of the game like this is what we do yeah two things on that one which is that you know that um 
like going back to the uh, Golden State game against Boston, if you look at like what they did um, on that out of bounds where uh, Durant got that mid range shot and he missed, um, that, you know that's a situation where you run something and you know in an ideal situation, I think they were down two right with uh, like ten seconds left or maybe eleven. I can't remember how much time was left, but Durant takes that little mid range shot. Um, but normally you want to wait and then give yourself a little bit of a chance for an offensive rebound because just in case, let's say he hit that shot, now it's tied and Boston has all the time in the world to then yeah. go win the game right so how do you balance again they got the right shot but at the wrong time right so it's like that could have cost them but you know again can you pass up the open shot when it's there yeah on the flip side with toronto the issue is i think it goes back to your ball movement thing right right where it's like you move the ball more and now the other guys have confidence to make plays at the end of a game so right what's your instinct if uh you know that lowry and DeRozan are gonna iso all game long and then in the last five minutes well now i'm just gonna give them the ball the second i touch it Right, but if you have a right. more ball movement inspired offense, well, then at the end of the game, maybe I'm going to have more confidence to be aggressive to make a play. So if it does touch my hands, I'm not just handing it back to Lowry or DeRozan. And so I think all this sort of ties into how you play at the end of a game. I mean, you look at you know the Spurs, and again, it's random guys making big shots at the end of game because everybody has confidence to make plays because they're not their offense doesn't work in a you know authoritarian way. It's a you know it's a democratic offense, so the end of the game is democratic as well. Yeah. All right. Well, we did a good job of not holding the ball and, and waiting until uh you know there was four on the shot clock here at the end of the podcast we got a uh, plenty of good points in there at the end so uh thanks again for dylan for coming on and uh we're hoping to have him as a regular contributor here going forward because uh he definitely provides a, a lot of insight you know we'll have him weigh in on the topics du jour thanks for joining us man i appreciate it thanks for having me Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.